Okay, we're live. Hi, everyone. Yeah. Hi, Josh. How are you? I'm good. Josh, How's it yeah, going? Right. Good. Um, I don't know how to yeah. introduce you because you're not a totally public person. Um, how should I introduce you? Um, long time listener, first time caller. Okay, long time listener, um, first time Yeah, no, we've been friends for a long time. Yeah. So nice. we got a great show for you guys today. Yeah, you did. We're going to have three guests on. Not one, not two, but three, and possibly four. Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Please rate and review the Katie Helper Show on iTunes and please support the show on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. On today's show, my guest co-host is my old friend, Josh. On today's episode, we speak to four journalists. First, we speak to Arun Gupta, who's based in New York City usually, but is now in Portland and has been there for the last few months. He's written for places like The Intercept, The Guardian, The Washington Post, In These Times, and more. Then we speak to Portland-based journalist Sergio Olmos, Alex Zielinski, and Tuck Woodstock. This episode was recorded Sunday night. Arun Gupta, thank you so much for joining. Hey, Katie. How are you doing? Good. You? Uh, well, you know, as well as one can be uh, doing in uh, end times. Yeah. And during the end times, you said? During end times. Yes. Yeah, we're true, getting, yeah. We're, we're getting into biblical eschatology. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I know. We've been there for a while, but you just brought it out. Um, yeah. uh, Arun, this is Josh. Uh, Josh Arun. Uh, Arun is a hey, very Arun. prolific writer. Hey, Josh. A prolific writer and journalist, um, and and he's uh, joining us from actually from Portland, correct? Yeah, yeah, I'm in the uh, exile in, in Portland. I got exile this, in Portland. Yeah, I got I got stuck here. Um, yeah, so the Liz Fair album uh, that never was. So tell yeah. tell listeners and viewers, please, um, what what is happening in Portland. Um, but I wanted to know, uh, not just like what you've been observing in, in Portland, but as someone who's been in the game, the activism and the reporting game for quite a while, if you could give us a kind of uh, a larger context for what we're seeing right now. Yeah, so, you know, I think uh, what's going on fits in this arc of, of protests that goes back uh, to the late 90s, a global justice movement, you know, um, where we saw these type of mass uh, demonstrations uh, in the street for in recently in Portland with these Black Lives Matter protests, you know, the uh, George Floyd protests, as uh, some people call it, it, tonight is going to be the 53rd straight night, uh, which is just absolutely remarkable. Um, they've been uh, largely uh, peaceful uh, protests, uh, nonviolent, um, but they've been met with a lot of violence by local law enforcement and now by uh, federal law enforcement. And, you know, as of course everyone knows, there's uh, the dramatic video of uh, Trump's uh, secret police uh, who are with the, the Border Patrol who come and snatch a person off the streets in the middle of the night, um, you know, don't identify themselves, just grab them, throw them in an unmarked uh, van like uh, soccer moms from hell uh, and uh, drive them off and, and uh, to who knows where. Um, and this is what, uh, this happened a few days ago and it triggered 
uh, this uh, huge uh, response. And, uh, you know, national media it was just like, oh, shit, what's happening in Portland? Like, you know, one of the, uh, the CNN uh, 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 talking heads is just like, I'm headed to Portland. And I, I visit uh, the West Coast a lot. Um, I'm based in New York, and I've, I've come out to Portland numerous times. And it's just like, I'm an independent journalist who just does this, you know, through crowdfunding and, and commissions from various outlets I write for. And it's just like, maybe y'all should have been paying attention to what's been going on in Portland for the last three years, because there's, there's a much longer an arc to this, right? Portland has become a testing ground for white nationalism. It's become a testing ground for fascistic mob violence that has been totally aided and abetted by the Portland police. And... And now it's also become this testing ground for uh, Trump's goons. The, you know, and they're talking explicitly about wanting to roll this out to other cities. Uh, so this is a really dangerous uh, moment um, that we're at. And but I think there's a lot of national reporting that there's very little national reporting, in fact, that is really understanding the dynamics that are going on here. And why is Portland this testing ground for white nationalism, for Trump's goons? Is it just coincidence? Um, Why this place that's so liberal, right? The place that's been, you know, has that Portlandia show. Yeah. So there, there are a number of, of interrelated uh, uh, reasons. And I, I think uh, some of your other guests, especially the Portland journalists, like uh, based journalists like Sergio Olmos and uh, Alex uh, Zelensky can add to this. So one, we have to understand the broader um, uh, historical context of Oregon was founded as an explicitly white supremacist state. It was uh, uh, illegal uh, for blacks to even pass through the state in the 19th century. It was illegal for blacks under the state constitution until the 1920s to um, uh, live in the state, to reside in the state. And under state law, any uh, African-Americans found living here could be flogged publicly every six months. And there was Sorry, there was wait, part- you cut out for a second. Every African-American found living here publicly? Could be, could be publicly flogged. Um, under, I've, I've, I've seen, you know, uh, rep, uh, articles about this stating that this what used to be a law that was on the books. And there were parts of this uh, just completely white nationalist racist law that were not repealed until 2004. So Portland is the whitest big city in in America, right? The whole Portlandia thing. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. And it it has this kind of like really problematic um, liberal white supremacist uh, uh, framework to it as well. So So how that affects today is one, you have the Pacific Northwest is this bastion of extreme white nationalist, neo-Nazi, Christian identity um, uh, movements um, that believe in this idea of creating a white homeland and killing people of color, right? uh, 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 Engaging in that ethnic cleansing, even murder. And this type of activity has been um, going on uh, for decades uh, here. You know, it, it starts with like Christian identity, Aryan nation, um, and but practically, what it means is the political context for Oregon and Portland is is that 
elected officials do not really challenge the white supremacy. And that means also they don't challenge the police forces who, who enforce this color line. And so what you have in Portland and Oregon is very cowardly politicians. And so you have an out-of-control police department, right? But that's nothing unique. You know, virtually all police departments are out of control, unaccountable. They only answer to themselves. But when you look at cities like Seattle or Minneapolis or New York or L.A., there's much more organized opposition to them. You have at least some elected officials who are willing to push back hard. And you also have social movements that push back hard. And what you really lack in Portland is elected officials. Right now, there's only really one elected official who is pushing back against police violence. That's uh, Joanne Hardesty, the first black woman ever elected to the Portland City Council. She was voted in in 2018. And she has kind of, you know, I want to say a little reluctantly, you know, come to it. But yesterday she issued quite a statement accusing the Portland police of collaborating uh, with, with the federal police police and saying that the mayor is allowing this to happen. Portland has a commissioner-based system, so the mayor sits on the city council and he's the commissioner of police. But I've been told by members of his staff that the mayor's office is, quote, afraid of the police. So you have um, a mayor that is afraid of his own police. The police withhold information from him. Um, A couple of years ago, there were members, um, I believe they were affiliated with Patriot Prayer, who were found by Portland police on a rooftop garage with long guns before a large anti-fascist rally was uh, going to take place. And so the obvious implication was, were they like preparing to engage in this in like a massacre? The police find them and they let them leave and they don't even tell the mayor for two months, um, even though he is in charge of the police. That is how little regard uh, they have for him. So you don't have any any sort of even minimal check uh, combined with this white supremacist culture. And this also extends to the prosecutor who um, the county prosecutor that covers Portland has been very lax in terms of going after these white nationalists committing violence. You have a police force, um, you know, uh, that uh, the local alt weeklies, Willamette Weekly and also uh, Portland Mercury, which Alex Zelensky writes for, have uncovered all this uh, type of like what appears to be significant cooperation between Portland police and these uh, far right violent extremists like Patriot Prayer and Proud Boys in terms of feeding them information, in terms of protecting uh, their membership you know, from arrest. Uh, So when you start, and you also have the uh, local newspaper, the Oregonian, lots of fine reporters, but their editorial board um, actually has like labeled, uh, you know, anti-fascist here, uh, punk fascist, showing that they have no idea what fascism means. And they even ran an editorial piece called Joey Gibson, who's head of Patriot Prayer, who uh, his group actually had a neo-Nazi show up uh, at a rally three years ago, who went on a few weeks later to commit uh, multiple murders while uh, yelling, die Muslims, at um, uh, two women of color. Um, So, and the Oregonian uh, had an opinion piece 
he's uh, calling him a man of love, right? So you have this whole kind of like generalized white supremacist culture. This is what the police operate under. So then when we look at the last 52 days, we see all this violence by Portland police themselves. Um, the ACLU of Oregon, people can go to their website. They have filed multiple lawsuits. They have two different temporary restraining orders on Portland police. The Portland police have been caught on tape time and time again, attacking uh, journalists, attacking legal observers, attacking uh, medics, attacking the public, attacking protesters who are peaceful. Um, there's a video by a local journalist, Tuck Woodstock. You can go on Twitter and find- uh, They're coming journal- on later. Okay, great. Um, uh, One of uh, uh, Tuck Woodstock's uh, videos uh, from last night um, shows the Portland police do these things called bull rushes, where they'll like charge in their right gear at protesters, even when they're not doing anything, and start beating them. Tuck has a video from last night of a man who had his arm broken. I know this man well, you know, and he is just very gentle. He's funny, sarcastic, a PhD student, a father, but he's just, he's not going to harm anyone. And they broke his arm. And so the thing is, we have to remember all this violence is going on before the feds got here. The uh, ACLU of Oregon is suing um, the Portland police, has multiple lawsuits over, over their violence, over systematic unconstitutional policing, no, over, you know, violation of, uh, you know, at least the First Amendment, if not the fourth and fourteenth as as well. So the the federal law enforcement, they've definitely ample, uh, amped up the violence. They're even less accountable. They're even more violent, uh, but this is I uh, we need to avoid like thinking like, oh, this is just, you know, Trump's uh, uh, goons and secret police um, there. You know, there's allegations coming from uh, Joanne Hardesty, the the. Uh, city commissioner that Portland police are collaborating uh, with with federal law enforcement. So the story really isn't about like, oh, the federal law enforcement are invading force. The story is that the federal law enforcement are working, appears to be working hand in glove with this unaccountable, violent local police force. And that's the reason they're here. That's the reason they're here and not in Seattle, not in Minneapolis, not in New York, not in Los Angeles, because they have an easier time coming in and collaborating with the, this already violent white supremacist local police force to to uh, brutalize and abuse the public. This is why Portland is attesting that. And this is what none of the national media are even talking about. And the problem of like them parachuting in when there are all these great local journalists who you're going to have who who can talk about this. And, you know, you should also talk to them about this broader context. No one is mentioning the three years of this Patriot Prayer and Proud Boys and neo-Nazis and neo-Confederates. I've been at these rallies where they come with all sorts of weapons and they're let the Portland police let them walk around with these weapons openly. And in 2018, Portland police police even attacked a peaceful anti-fascist demonstration. They nearly killed uh, one protester with uh, munitions to the back of the head, right? You know, we've seen all those videos uh, of last week of this young man who was shot by federal police in the head and they nearly killed him. Well, the Portland police have done that multiple times as well. 
they attacked the anti-fascist protesters, and that enabled the fascists to go into the streets and then attack them. And right, so at minimum, they created the conditions for this fascistic mob violence, if not actually uh, encouraging it and collaborating with it. So, you know, it's like, let's not just think that this is a problem coming from Trump. This, this is a problem of the, this quote unquote liberals in this, you know, progressive uh, wonderland called Portlandia, that they are enablers of fascism as well. It's really interesting because um, it reminds me of something that happened in Seattle. And I know you were there also, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But there was this, it almost made me laugh. I guess the mayor of Seattle was asked about um, police cams, uh, body cams, and gave this like pseudo civil libertarian woke response to why they had been shut off, which is because like Seattle is committed to not being a surveillance city. Um, right. Which is like Shahid Buttar can make that argument against body cams, sure. But like, it was just hilarious. I mean, it was like I couldn't believe it. But it's another example of of this kind of like uh, collaboration and um, collaborationism. And I'm really interested to hear more more about this from you because you're someone who I think really walks that line of both acknowledging that Trump and Trumpism is not an aberration in many ways, but it is also unprecedented. Um, so can you can you uh, share more about that, please? Yeah, so I, I uh, last month I went up uh, to check out uh, the CHOP, the Capitol Hill organized protest, which that began because of police violence um, there. So in uh, Seattle, the Capitol Hill neighborhood is kind of the historic, it's it's like the West Village. It's a historic queer neighborhood where, where you get gay activism, trans activism comes out of, and th- there's a police um, a precinct uh, right in the middle of it. And so, you know, going back to the World Trade Organization meeting in 1999, which was a police riot um, that happened on November 30th that caused the city to shut down. The police rioted in Capitol Hill, gas a neighborhood. This was like when indie media exploded, right? No one knew what it was. And suddenly there's this new kind of like crowdsourced media uh, phenomena where all these people are posting videos and audios and photo- photos and print. Of, of all this uh, police uh, violence happening in Seattle. So fast forward 21 years later with, with the Black Lives Matter protests that are breaking out in Seattle, people are protesting. They're just trying to march past the police precinct in, in, in Capitol Hill. And night after night, the Seattle police attacked them viciously using, you know, this total militarized police response. And, you know, there's also this whole context you know, people like Alex Batali and uh, Stuart Schrader and Christian Williams, the people um, people who write about the militarization and history of policing. Alex, former guest, multiple times on the show. Right. Yeah. And they, you know, when the police are military force, when they use counterinsurgency tactics, they are going to see the public as insurgents. So under Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin, the police start engaging in these vicious attacks on, on peaceful protests. 
protests. You know, they won't even let them march by um, the East Precinct. And they start, like, gassing the entire neighborhood, right? So this has happened in, in Portland to a small degree. Seattle is denser. And so there are these reports coming out in early June of, like, you know, it appears that hundreds of people were tear gassed in their, their own home, you know, which is illegal under international law. You can't use it as a weapon of war, but you can use it against your own civilians. So this goes on night after night. And the and what this does, it has the effect of building the protests, right? And this is also actually a phenomena that we see. There's this Israeli line, you know, when force doesn't work, use more force. And this is also the approach of police um, law enforcement agencies throughout the world, especially in the United States. When force doesn't work, use more, more force. But there are times it backfires. It backfired in Tahrir Square. Square in, in 2011. You know, it obviously backfired in Tunisia uh, uh, before that. Um, then it backfires with Occupy Wall Street, where we see these high-profile incidents of women getting pepper sprayed in Union Square, the mass arrest of 700 people one week later, I think that was October 1st, 2011, on Brooklyn Bridge, where the police repression just ends up building the movement. And this is exactly the same phenomenon. Like Now, what's happened here in Portland, the protests were waning because, you know, frankly, it's phenomenal that they've gone on for 50 days but once this video blows up of these uh, secret police abducting someone like it's chile 1973 um and uh, then this becomes a national story suddenly the protests go from 200 to 2000 um with, with within a couple of days so you know trump and cuccinelli and the, uh, this chad wolf who sounds oh like God, he, he I know the the guy himself sounds like he's some sort of like neo Nazi terror cell. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. just like we're Chad we're the Ch- we're the Chad Wolfs, you know. <laughs> um, so you know, maybe they're like you know a boogaloo uh, break off. Yeah. So, yeah. This ends up, the violence ends up actually building the movement. And the the important thing is these are overwhelmingly peaceful protests. Um, I was just you know talk to Tuck Carlson about this. I was just talking to them. It's just like, look, the type of stuff that's going on, it's like graffiti, you know, it's like people building barricade out of junk they find in the street. Like they keep putting up these fences, right? And then every night people come and dismantle like hundreds and hundreds of yards of fences and they'll pile them up against um, uh, uh, these federal buildings. There are three federal buildings in a row and they built these, it's like a medieval siege out there. They built these like barricades and they even have murder holes, right? This is like some medieval character where they open these slots and then shoot weapons out of them, you know, like tear gas, um, you know, flashbangs, uh, rubber bullets, um, you know, all, all, all sorts of stuff. So the violence ends up building the protests. And this is exactly, getting back to Seattle, this is exactly what happened in Seattle, that the protest, the policing response just kept getting more and more violent. And yet it just kept building the protests because they were losing control of the city. The mayor was losing any sort of legitimacy. And again, this is a difference with Portland, that there was this mass uprising from below, that these Democrats in Seattle and Kings County, which covers Seattle, started a petition calling uh, for the resignation of Mayor Durkin, mm-hmm. who's a cop, who's a cop. She's a former federal prosecutor, right? Just ah. like come 
Kamala the cop, just, right, uh, right. just like a claw butcher, Klobuchar, whatever, you know, <laughs> like, you know, throw binders at, uh, throw the book and binders at people. Right. So they're, they're all cops. And, and so first you have this petition and it totally blows up. Tens of thousands of people signed it. Then you have Shama Sawad, the socialist, socialist alternative. She's like came out in support of it. Then you have two other city council members who came out in support of, you know, like Mayor Durkin needs to resign now. And then, you know, I won't get into all the details. There's these incidents of like violence, including the guy who drives into the crowd. Yeah. You know, there's been over 50 of these cars attack. He, he gets out like someone uh, reached in, grabbed the steering wheel. He shoots the guy in the arm. Then he gets out. He's waving the gun around and then he's able to allow to surrender peacefully to the Capitol Hill police. You know, a guy waving a gun around with an extended magazine. And he claims that he had a relative who, who worked there. He actually would no longer work there. But in, in any case, it's then that Durkin is just like, okay, we're going to remove the police um, from the East Precinct. Like she was trying to get the heat off herself. And that's what then led to like, you know, they suddenly, the protesters suddenly find themselves in control of the entire area. And they create the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, which is renamed the Capitol Hill Occupied Protest because Black Lives Matter protesters are like, we're not trying to secede from the U.S., blah, blah, blah whatever but what you have there is is like the police it appears that they kind of then go on strike because there are all these shooting incidents that happen including uh two people who are, who are killed but none of them actually happen within the chop themselves mm. um they happen the chop, blocks, which again is um uh the, the, in seattle capitol hill organized no, protest right, that yeah. was the kind of liberated area right. around the police station that they uh brief they abandoned for a couple of weeks and you know at first it's this great thing but on juneteenth you know so i mean the way someone explained it to me is like look you know it's just like we we've seen all these occupies before and you know i've been following what's going on in new york city with occupy city hall you create these like safe spaces where you are providing food, you're providing shelter, you're providing security, you're providing hope. And we have these massive homeless populations around the U.S. With, and which may explode starting in a few weeks as these evictions um, uh, start. And people are going to come there. There's nothing wrong with that. But you start to get the significant homeless population. And as one person, you know, described it to me, I, I think rather delicately it just like look you know occupies draw free thinkers and free thinkers they like to do drugs right so you create basically not everyone is there they're doing drugs we don't want to create that stigma but at the same time there are clearly people there with addiction problems or who just like to do drugs you create a market for the drugs that draws in the gangs and that's what appears to be what the violence was in Seattle, but the police were not doing any policing around the area, right? And so the claim is, oh, we need police for public safety. And it's just like, they're not doing any policing outside of the chop, even though business owners keep calling them and saying like, hey, we're having problems. 
And this is what apparently sets off the shootings are gang rivalries and perhaps also turf battles over this new drug market that grew up in the chop because there's this park where like over a hundred homeless people were living at one point. And I went through there and I talked to some people and, and some woman was just like, you know, it's just like this, there's tweakers who are coming by all the time looking to buy drugs. And so what they ended up doing is they created these conditions and that, or, or they concentrated these conditions that already exist, right? The homelessness already exists, the gangs already exist, the drug trade already exists, and the cops, um, and they, one, they treat these problems, which are social problems, as criminal justice problems. You know, right. secondly, they allow it to run rampant. And third, when it then, like, it comes into the Occupy movement, which again, we saw happen all over the country in 2011, 2012. They then blame the Occupy for these already existing problems and then say, oh, we're, we can't do policing. See that this is a failure. So they end up trying to blame them for the social conditions that already exist, that they have failed, that they have created with their neoliberal policies that they have failed to address. And so this is kind of what led to the um, like basically the implosion um, of, of the chop, because once the violence starts happening, 90 percent of the people leave. Right. You don't want to be around when right. they're shooting. But so. It's important to recognize what all this shows and, you know, like what's going on in, in Portland and, you know, the people I've talked to, been talking to are like the, the police, the local police are the instigators of violence. The federal police are the instigators of violence. When the police aren't present, it's like a block party. It's 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 and it's like not necessarily every night, but it's festive. It's joyous. There's a lot of levity. People are dancing. And, yeah, are they engaging in like kind of like petty, you know, property destruction? Sure. It's just like whatever. Like, is this any different than what like frat boys do after their uh, college team right. wins a big, big game? In fact, it's usually less than what the frat boys right. do. And but they're acting like it's some sort of like existential threat to society and so it's portland police the portland police have have themselves said they're the ones who called for the feds they said we called for mutual aid so because <laughs> mutual aid society yeah. And so that, aid, that, yeah that's why it's we cannot ignore the local angle and so like you know it's yes what trump administration doing is genuinely scary it is a genuine escalation but let's not decontextualize you know the, this kind of like um liberal enabling of fascism in its own way and ted wheeler has enabled fascism this white nationalist violence these proud boy riots you know it's, i mean it's just shocking like you know i've talked to journalists who are in charlottesville and they say what they've seen in the streets of Portland is worse than what they saw in Charlottesville. Wow. Well, this was great. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, I mean, I guess I, the hope with all of this stuff, and it hasn't happened a lot, but it's it's such a metaphor, right? Because I, I think the hope is like these egregiously shocking images of people being thrown into unmarked vehicles hopefully can be like a, a gateway drug, a gateway like whatever into looking at how the local police are violating rights instead of a the danger is that it'll be looked at as a contrast like anything less than that is okay it's normal 
Yeah, exactly. Just because the feds leave, if the feds leave, we're still going to see this un- unconstitutional policing. We're still going to see this brutalization of the protesters, you know, and there's also, you, you know, what's funny is the independent police review, which like virtually every other police oversight board is completely toothless and in fact collaborates with the police. Even they have come out and said, you know, it looks like the Portland police are having the feds do their dirty work. Wow. Right. Because there are these two temporary temporary restraining orders on the Portland police. They're not supposed to use tear gas unless there's like a threat to life. Um, And like piling like, you know, fences, chain link fences up against doors is not a threat to life, even though the Portland police, but the federal officers are just using the tear gas wantonly. Um, And then the second restraining order is about them uh, attacking uh, uh, journalists and legal observers. And the federal police are still doing this. And, you know, Sergio can um, uh, talk to this. He was uh, told uh, multiple t- times to leave in the last few nights to get out by Portland police, even though they are in a, under an explicit a judge ruling to not interfere with identifiable journalists and and Sergio goes around with as an identifiable journalist so they are the ones who are shredding the constitution trump is is just throwing fuel on the fire yeah well, thank you so much, Arun, and um, come back on because we could talk all, all day about this and all the other stuff that you're working on. Um, and just let people know, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me on Twitter, at Arun Indy. I mean, my stuff is all over the place. Nation, um, Intercept, Jacobin, In These Times, Progressive, um, et cetera. Great. Well, uh, keep us posted, and thank you again so much for this analysis. Thanks for having me on. Byron. Uh, bye. Thanks, Aaron. That was great. I think okay, that it's cool. a really important context and provides really important context. And um, you know, also I like it. You know, I'm old. I'm I'm younger than Arun, but I'm older than our following guests, I believe. So I feel like it's a nice, like you know, I don't know how to say this without sounding problematic or Same ageist, way, but yeah. it's a nice segue. Yeah, you know. So um, you know, the Altacacas, such as ourselves. <laughs> Our, uh, now we, we are turning towards yeah. the, uh, the, uh, the next generation. Let's bring our next guest on. Are you guys ready? Now we speak to journalist Sergio Olmos and Alex Zielinski. Then we're joined by Tuck Woodstock. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having us. Yes. So, uh, wanted to ask you guys, thank you so much for your, for your work, um, uh, you are people who are actually, you're there, you're from there. Um, you've been on the ground for a while. Well, I just want to, is it Sergio or, Ser- or Sergio? Which way do uh, you, which pronunciation? Which, whichever you prefer, um, whichever you prefer. All right. I've heard people refer to you in both. My, both. Yeah. Uh, Sergio sounds like, like my mother's yelling at me for doing something wrong. And uh, Sergio sounds like the classmates at Okay, so now we're gonna have to do some Freudian stuff, and you have to tell me which dynamic you prefer. And based on that, I'll, I'll use the name. But yeah. Um, well, so so tell us um, uh, what you guys have been observing, and what what is it that you that you think national audiences should know about that that we don't. Uh, where to begin with that one? Um, I don't know. We've. Uh, both Sergio and I, Sergio has been out there m- more than I, but we've been covering this on the ground since, um, you know, 
the the last days of May when kind of the protests began, and it's just it's become um, it's just become a different beast every week. It's kind of a different uh, iteration of a different protest, and there's different or, you know kind of uh, folks organizing and different people in leadership positions. And um, I think the trickiest thing about reporting on this is being able to encapsulate it all into a quick soundbite. Um, obviously, recently, the federal police showing up has kind of put this on the national map. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's worth talking about how the police beforehand in, in Portland, the, the city police also were, um, and everyone mentioned this beforehand, but also were uh, acting with impunity in some ways um, against protesters. And, and I think that escalation that um, uh, that we're now seeing with federal police has, um, you know, made it easier for, for Portland officers to kind of step back in some ways and, and let the feds do their, their work. So it's been kind of, it gives them, it's like an, it's a mutual enabling kind of. Yeah. I mean, I know Rune mentioned this also, but yeah, there's, there's these, uh, legal constraints and legislative constraints on the city of Portland's police um, department right now so they're restricted from uh, using tear gas without you know kind of checking these boxes and uh, and same with less lethal munitions against protesters but that's not the same for federal police we don't even right. really know what rules they follow so including apparently I guess showing up and taking people into unmarked vehicles yeah um, I retweet everything Alex just said. Okay, you co-sign it. I mean, what's what's the environment there like? I mean, what what's the environment been like for you guys just walking around or trying to do your jobs? And is it is it a next level? I mean, as as people who are Portlandians, or uh, is it is there a palpable difference that you feel between um, walking around with the fed federal goons there versus the local police on a kind of visceral level? Um, I can. I can take that also, but then I want Sergio to talk. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll add to whatever you say. <laughs> yeah, I I think as a journalist right now, when you're covering these protests, you know, or at least we know that there's some legal, um, uh, you know, protections that we have against police um, that once they call a a riot um, and you know dispersal order, telling folks to leave the area, that we're uh, now allowed to stick around and still be there and not be arrested or be subject to violence by police. Um, and so I think even though it's, you know, not a huge amount of safety, it feels a little bit, or has felt a little bit more safer walking around as a member of the media with the police there. Um, and, and then with, you know, the federal officers don't have to follow those rules. And so, um, it's a little, yeah, it's a little more of a black box. We have no idea kind of how, if they, care that we have a press badge. Um, they don't know us, you know, a lot of local mm -hmm. officers, I, I report on the cops and so I know some of them. Um, and, uh, but yeah, these are folks from who knows where and, and who are used to dealing with border patrol issues, so. Right, and bring it to the non-border. Yeah, so b before I talk about like the federal agents, um, um, I should say like, it is a very small part of Portland where this is happening, right? Like it's happening in downtown and not even the whole of downtown, like a very tiny, like if you got your pinky and put it on Google maps for, of Portland, it wouldn't even fit your whole pinky. It's like a tiny part. That being said, um, 
Or no, adding to that, like most of the day, it's actually like not a lot, not a lot of attention. And like, what I think what gets missed in um, like nationally for these protests, because like nobody buys these videos, is like there's a lot of culture, like a lot of music and a lot of like art and uh, a lot of expression, especially during the lockdown when like. You know, there's no way to there's no way to go to bar and no way to like hang out. Like, there's no way to express. Like, there was a lot of like uh, uh, art and culture happening at the at the demonstrations. Um, nighttime, though, uh, when you know, uh, when especially with these federal agents, uh, it is I think, in my mind, the most dangerous it's ever been. And, and there's probably less people getting hurt like in the last you know week. Like like probably less like bruises if you tally them up but it is so dangerous in my estimation alex you, you can you can add your analysis here that because these federal agents like they're an unknown quantity like i have i have no idea what their like standing orders are what their mission really is um what the rules of engagement are like they're when they tear gas uh um like last night they came out and they tear gassed right unannounced they just came out tear gassed then they went back in to their to the courthouse and like there's no press conference the next day right there's nobody we can direct questions to there's no like hey what were the events that led up to that what was like the specific things what can people avoid to you know what can people do to avoid that um it's almost like they have the attitude of like listen you know if we go out and tear gas you you know that's how it is and you're not going to ask any questions um and that's just like a very strange way to like run a a civil society. I mean, it's a complete departure from how things were just a few weeks ago. I think that's dangerous too, because so many protesters who've been coming out were familiar with the rules of, of the Portland police enough. You know, this is kind of how a night goes and this is how they escalate and this is what's expected. And then to show up and then really out of the blue without any warning, be kind of assaulted by these um, these officers and, you know, combat gear. Um, I think it's really been frustrating. Not not that the way that you know local police treated folks was any uh, was incredibly better, but I think uh, just the difference has been really surprising and, and startling and shocking for folks. But I also think I think that response has drawn so many more people out to protest each night. Um, you know, before the feds came to town, things um, you know the night the events were dwindling a little bit, um, and uh, I think if anything. Uh, the you know the presence of federal officers kind of acting um, without any accountability has drawn a lot of more people out. People who you know maybe it protested in the very beginning um, or haven't at all. And um, yeah, I don't know if that's exactly what Trump was wanting with this. Right. Can I add quickly to something Alex was just saying? Like when she said that Portland protesters knew like the like how PPB operated and the rules of engagement. Um, um, just last night, Zane Sparling of the Portland Tribune shot this video of a, a man named Christopher David, who, like a tall man who, who's been dubbed Captain Portland, and he he's talking to federal officers, agents, and they start just hitting him with batons, and, and he doesn't flinch, and then somebody pepper sprays him, or maces him, and he walks away. He ended up in the ER with like a broken hand. The guy is like 53 years old, veteran of the Navy. And last night, he says, was the first time he came out there. And he came out there specifically because he was offended that people in military fatigues were on the street doing this. And he said he mm. wanted to go ask him like one question, which was, why are, you, why are you violating your oath to the Constitution? 
in that specific instance, right, this guy ended up in the ER and like, there's no charges filed, right? There's no agency that he would know who to complain to, right? Because there's three different agencies out there, right? And like, there's nothing, like he was standing on the street in front of the federal courthouse, right? Like, there was no dis dispersal order. There was no like unlawful assembly. Like ostensibly, he did nothing illegal, but like he ended up with like a broken hand, right? I mean, this is not this is not this is not normal. Like, that we have due process if you do something illegal, right? There's a way that you apprehend criminals if they had in fact committed a crime. The the story about Chris David, uh, Christopher David, feels like that's what's going to come of this uh, 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 federal deployment. Yeah, I'm looking for that video right now. Sorry. Um, I, I emailed it to you. Oh, you did email it to me? Okay. I had a question. This is one of these, you guys, come together. Got to have your finger on the pulse. Oh, great. Okay, perfect. Um, thank you. And, yes, shout out to um, uh, Zane, um, who uh, – Zane Sparling, right? PDX Zane, who's uh, – not only uh, has he shot great footage, and I'm about to show you this video that Sergio just referred to, but uh, we use one of his photos for the thumbnail for tonight. Um, so everyone check out um, PDX Zane. All right, so I'm going to share this video that you just referred to, which is pretty incredible. Um, I feel like this has the potential to maybe, I don't know. It, like, combines with, like, American, like, um, mythology, like, you know, the, like, military uh, valor and lore with protests. It could get very good. Let's just sit. Let's see what happens. It could be a historic video. Okay. It's really amazing. Like when I when I first th saw that, I thought it was like fake. Uh, because the guy just stands there and like, doesn't, I was like, is someone standing in front of him? He was so respond. He, he was so not reactive. I thought there was like another body in front of him. Um, but yeah, so, okay. And, and so have you guys spoken to him by the way, or have, uh, interviewed him? Yeah. I, Alex, if you, I, if you've interviewed him, but I, yeah, I interviewed I him last this morning. He, uh, he, um, he he's a um, remarkable guy he's like got so much personality and like he had just got out of the er and like it, you know his knees he needs surgery and um what's what's remarkable about him is like he was a lieutenant in the navy class of 88 uh like naval academy um and uh he like went to the va hospital to get patched up and like i asked him like hey you know like you know, because I got to write an article. I'm like, I need to Sorry. hit the emotion, right? What'd you feel when they did this? And he looks pretty stoic. Referring... So... But yeah, and even in the interview the next day, he was just like, well, I knew they were going to do that once they started hitting me. And, you know, I'm not going to, like, you know, run away. And it's just like, the guy was just so clear in, in, like, his purpose, which was, like, he did not understand why these guys would be out on the street doing that. And he, like, had resolved to be like, come on, I'm a Navy guy. You, you, you shouldn't be doing this. That's remarkable. Mm. So is that's when change happens. Remember, they went after the army. That's McCarthy went after the army, uh, Joe McCarthy, and that's when people were like, "Enough!" So this could be a watershed moment, and then we can problematize that, but we're not going to do that because that's annoying. Um, 
Uh, Alex, what about you? You, you have that. <laughs> not, question. Yeah, Josh, yeah. No, Josh, go. Yeah, yeah, I was just kind of wanted to follow. Yeah, I wanted to follow up on that and ask you guys if you knew about any of the other people that they've taken. Um, have any of these people been released? Any idea where they're going? Um, is there any pattern to it? Are they all, you know, prominent activists? Are people being targeted? Like, what's the situation? Do you want to do you want to take this, Alex? Or no, can you go for it? Roxanne, both. Uh, so I talked to Mark Pettibone, who he's he was mentioned in that OPB article, that fantastic article by Jonathan Levinson and Conrad Wilson. Wilson. <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, the one that like every every national paper wrote for, including the New York Times, but it OPB was the one that, that broke that. Um, this gentleman, uh, Mark Pettibone, he's the one who says that you know he was walking away from the protests on just after two in the morning on July fifteenth, and you know. Uh, a van came up to him and guys in camel jumped out and uh, he's like, what, you know, why, why? And, and they said, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. One guy said, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. And then grabbed him, threw him in the van. Another guy pulled his beanie over his head and uh, they took him to what he later found out was the federal courthouse. They didn't charge him with anything. They didn't give him any documents. They didn't tell him like what agency they were with. And they just released him after two hours. Um, and he still has no idea like, like who they were, what law he broke. Um, so that's Mark Pettibone. His friend, Connor O'Shea, who, who was with them, who was also trying to avoid the, the, the federal agents, he said, I didn't know if they were Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, or what, which is um, something that like a lot of people have talked about because they dress in camel with no like insignias the same way that Oath Keepers dress, right? These right. far, who are, yeah, far right. Yeah. Uh, Guys. Yeah. So we found out since then that they're CBP, right? Mm -hmm. That's confirmed. Mm -hmm. Does that, yeah. I was wondering but from your reporting I, I think, earlier, does that tie, tie in and make sense? Has CBP been there for a while and coordinating with Portland PD or yeah, is that so, surprising? So CBP, um, uh, I feel like four or five different federal agencies have been um, responding to these protests actually for a while, but the majority of them are just agents and officers who already live and are located in Portland. There's a, you know, ICE detention, well, very small ICE uh, holding uh, place here. There's, um, you know, folks who work at the federal courthouse doing security and stuff. And, um, and so those people have been coming out and kind of, kind of, you know, guarding the, the federal courthouse for a minute, um, but uh, quite different than the response we saw after 4th of July or kind of right before 4th of July from these kind of uh, extra uh, officers who were sent by DHS, uh, Homeland Security, um, but are also part of Border Patrol. Um, and I, I think, you know, it's important to point out that the federal officers have been kind of engaged in this for a while. Um, it's just these, the this broader group of kind of you know heavily trained agents um, with DHS and with Border Patrol who who showed up in town recently. So, um, yeah, I think that wasn't too surprising. 
And can you talk more about these, um, right, uh, like the white supremacist organizations and their relationship with um, law enforcement, whether it's on the federal level or the local police? Um, and uh, what do you think should should be done about this? I mean, Arun talked about the fear and how, how he thinks that the police kind of intimidate politicians, which is something I've thought about sometimes with like Bill de Blasio. And I wonder, like, does he actually risk? I don't, I don't know if this is true. I wonder sometimes, though, if Bill de Blasio actually feels like I mean, he's a sellout in so many other ways, so it uh, probably wouldn't have to be this way. But if he actually feels like in, at risk, do you think that there is a safety issue where, where the politicians actually feel at risk or is it more of an ideological thing? Um, I think if we're talking about at risk of not winning an election, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, that's 100 percent what drives a lot of conversations here. Um, and, you know, I was just at a press conference for the uh, Portland Police Association, which is the police union here, um, where, you know, the, the president and is flanked by uh, his other leaders within the police union decrying kind of the violence and calling on the mayor and other city commissioners to, to step up and, and kind of put an end to the nightly uh, violence. And, and, of course, the violence they're talking about is, uh, just coming from protesters, there's no acknowledgement of the way that their officers are acting. Right. Um, so, I mean, there's a ton of money in police unions. There's like such a history in how police unions shape a city and shape elections and, um, you know, make sure that, that no checks and balances can really be made. They're, they're the absolute kind of um, opposite of transparency when it comes to how they allow and or how they you know, through union contracts, how they push um, cities to, to lessen kind of their uh, accountability measures on, on officers and penalties and officers. And so I think, yes, I think, you know, far right white supremacist groups are um, always um, are always concerning and their relationships with the police are equally concerning. I think in this exact moment in time, in, in Portland in the past, that's been a really big part of protest. We've had a ton of uh, national attention for, you know, the Proud Boys and for um, local kind of uh, alt-right groups organizing it in Portland because they know that there's um, there are people who want don't want them there. Um, but, you know, this moment in particular, I think, is much more about um, kind of the, the police good old boys than um, than the all right that they're supporting. I mean, I know the, the, the classic characters who always come to town who are um, associated with these groups. None of them are really here right now. Um, and um, I mean, I think somewhere up in Seattle, but you know, it's, it's kind of a different conversation. Hmm. And guys, really exciting news. We have our final guests joining us right now. Uh, and you heard uh, Arun mention their work. Tuck Woodstock. Welcome. Uh, hi. Hi. Thanks so much for coming. Of course. Um, and Tuck, you've done a bunch of uh, of really great video shooting. Actually, Arun mentioned the video um, that you shot of the man who broke his arm, I believe. Um, yeah, it turns out oh. there were two men who broke their oh. arm at the same night. But there's wow. definitely one of them. Yeah, for sure. There's one in North Portland and there's one okay. uh, in downtown. Got it. 
everyone just chased into the highway, then bull rushed again. This man was thrown to the ground multiple times and is now bleeding badly from multiple wounds on his face. He is dazed and clearly needs a medic, but we are still moving away from the police. And then you're an update on this man. He's currently in the ER. He has multiple breaks on his left arm alone and possibly needs surgery. And I, if this is the person Arun was talking about, he did indeed have surgery. First of all, what's it like, um, like just documenting that? Are you scared yourself in the moment when it's happening? Um, <laughs> a, I guess, I don't know. Not, I mean, I feel less scared than the protesters should be because like the majority of the violence is directed towards protesters. And technically Portland police is not supposed to be arresting or assaulting us per like the restraining order against them and so i feel relatively less threatened uh but it's not like there's a zero chance that i will be hurt there was another journalist that same hour who was thrown to the ground by ppb and had to leave the scene because they were so injured uh and a couple of nights ago portland police like arrested a journalist which they're explicitly not allowed to do and so yeah there's like some risk but it feels like you know, so far I have been very lucky uh, compared to other journalists and that the worst thing that's happened to me is been being tear gassed repeatedly and being like physically shoved. And like, that's pretty, pretty good for being a journalist covering these things. Right. What about the rest of you? Um, what have you faced so far? Um, I mean, I feel like tear gas has become standard uh-huh. whenever you go out now. Um, but I don't know. I have... I feel like I have such a privilege to be a member of the press, um, to, I, sh- I show up, um, dressed as like politely as I can be to indicate that I look like a member of the press. And I also kind of lean heavily on the like frail woman vibe. Um, I, I'm a white woman. I, you know, I'm salaried. I, I have the luxury of having a lot of people who follow me on the internet. And so I'm yeah. able to take videos and, give, you know, some kind of truthful um, explanation about what's going on. And I don't know, I feel, I I definitely don't feel afraid. I I don't, I wouldn't put myself out there if I felt super uncomfortable and really afraid. I think that um, it's a false narrative that people are, you know, if people are putting themselves out there and and wanting um, and, and, I mean, we're all doing it because we feel like we have maybe a public duty or public service in some ways, and we have a voice, we have a platform. Um, Yeah, I, compared to many other journalists who are out there, uh, I have not faced much aggression or violence. Um, Just, you know, shot a lot of snot rockets. Right. Sergio? Pressure's I have a slightly on. different answer. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, we we all covered like the Antifa, Proud Boy, Patriot Prayer rallies that've been going on here for years, and so like, like those were like journalists were treated as like neutral observers, right? Police didn't 
they didn't even pay attention to us. Like we could walk through police lines. They didn't care about us. Um, for like a couple of days here, that was true. And then it quickly went away where we were treated the same as protesters. Like, and, and um, like, you know, it got to the point where like you saw the video of, of Zane Sparling where he, he was trying to run away from police officer and the police officer came around the corner to, to push him like away from the police line. He said media, the cop said, um, uh, I don't give a, I don't give a shit, you know, get out of here. Um, I got, I got hit in like the mouth, like with a baton. Um, when I was like, I was behind a police officer, you know, like I wear it press all over me and I dress like uh, like a yuppie, like no, no one's in a, I have a Kevlar, but I dress like, I dress in stuff that I don't even wear in regular life just to look like not threatening, right? I dress, I don't dress in black. Like, and I was like, hey, I'm behind you. Guy didn't hear me. There's two police officers in right here. I'm like, hey, I'm behind you because I don't want to sneak up on a police officer, right? And so they turn around and I'm like, I'm behind you, I'm going this way. And like, I guess there was like a way it should have gone. And he like just pushed, hit me with the baton, got a bruised lip and then like put the mace in my face or whatever. He didn't mace me. Um, but like the next day I was like adamant, you know, like we need a letter, a very strongly worded letter that this is not the way it should be. Um, because I thought that like, um, it was, it was, it was a, a departure from, from the way things were when there were thousands of people in the street, there were rights declared, there were, you know, fist fights, like the, all those rallies beforehand, you know, it, you know, we didn't have, we, we didn't, uh, we didn't escalate to this. So is there fear out there? Like, there was fear, like honestly. Uh, I, I know Tuck and, and, and Alex are fearless, but like uh, this Mexican at some point did start feeling the fear. And uh, like, especially night after night where you're getting tear gas, flashbanged, and then like the cops are, you don't know if they're gonna hit you with the impact munitions to the face or they're gonna hit you with a baton or, or, or if they're not gonna do anything, right? Like just, just the not knowing. Um, you're like an animal in fear night after night and you just wanna get to safety, right? But you can't, cause you gotta cover this thing. And so, when we had the federal injunction, right, the, the ACLU lawsuit, um, it did feel like Portland police were making an effort not to mess with journalists. And it, you did feel a little better. And then the federal agents showed up and that the fear just came right back because I have no idea what they're about. I feel as 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 worried as I've ever had um, uh, uh, filming around them because I don't know what they're about. So I'll just say like, um, you know, for other journalists who feel fear covering these events, like no, no, absolutely no shame. Like I, uh, I, I fucking have like panic attacks coming home now, like eating a, like a Jack in the box, like, uh, you know, in adrenaline, I'm totally cool. But like, I'm like, I don't know, man, I, if I, I'll sit in my car for like two hours on Twitter and just be like, where, I don't even know where I was going or walk into rooms. I have no idea what I was going to do in that room. Uh, so definitely the fear has a, has an effect. Yeah. I, I want to add that there's certainly these after effects of what this is. I think when I'm on the ground, I'm very um, kind of adrenaline high. And in the moment, I think we probably are, all are, and we're just kind of like, what's going on? Who should be watching? What's, what's wrong here? Um, but the days that I'm not there, I just feel it in my whole body. Um, it's just like a constant, like the days after, I don't go out as frequently as Tuck and Sergi. And so, when I do, I have to kind of mentally prepare for like the unwinding that comes after those two days where my body just like kind of slowly decompresses. But, um, but you know, you're just super jumpy all the time and you're just trying to kind of unpack what's going on. Um, it's something that I think will last with a lot of us journalists and, and also, you know, members of the public who maybe have never even been to a protest like this before. Um, 
there's going to be lasting effect. Yeah. 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 I, oh, sorry. No. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say that uh, I have found that in order to get like the trauma out of my body, I need to take like at least two days off. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, there are only so many of us covering this. And so it has not really been possible for any of us to take even every other day off would be like really luxurious. And so it becomes this thing where like, I can tell that I am constantly in a trauma zone and I feel uh, like completely ungrounded from my day to day life. And I like walk into the street and people are like having a good time. And I'm like, this is unrelatable to me. Like what is a good time? What is enjoying the sunshine? What is being awake before 2 PM? Um, and there's not really like a space to ever reset from that because we have to go out the next night to make sure it's covered. Um, and I think that when this started for me, I was like, well, it'll be a couple weeks of this and then things will go back to normal, like not, not to normal, but like my routine, my personal routine will go back to normal and it's day, what, 52, 53. And so it's just a question of like how sustainable this is to have like a small handful of people out there covering it night after night after night and like incurring more and more trauma for, uh, two months. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you're all saying certain degrees, um, like you're acknowledging that there are people who are much more vulnerable than you, but you obviously are going through stuff too, which I think is like a fair thing to, you know, mm -hmm. it's like an important part of, of reporting on reporting. Right. And for me, I feel like, I feel like I can't leave. Like when it gets the most dangerous, people will start texting me, go home. And I'm like, no, this is when I have to stay. Like there was one night when I was about to leave and then it was a dispersal notice was given. And I was like, well, now I have to stay for another hour because I have to go up intentionally to the riot line to film. Like I'm always up there. We're always up there on the line. So when everyone else is retreating, I am going forward into the violence um, because that's our job. And so, yeah, that's, that's something as well. And what, how much, how much of a palpable difference does it feel like, I mean, we've all, you've all been talking, you guys in, in a room have been talking about how there was a lot of us, uh, there were a lot of problems before um, with just the local police and, and this challenge, I mean, of how to basically like, you know, the danger is that people are seeing these absolutely like images that we're not used to seeing within the United States, right? This is like people are like, oh, wait, this happens over there if they know that it happens over there. Um, like this is usually stuff that the United States like pretends to condemn um, or supports in other countries. Um, but at the same time, as, as people have been saying, like, we can't pretend that if the feds go, it's going to be all good. So how, how are you like, how do you walk that line? How do you make how do you take advantage of the fact that this is really a kind of like, in many ways, unprecedented moment, but that if and when the feds leave, you'll still have this problem, right? I mean, I think, uh, personally, we have so many, um, there's so much national attention right now, maybe international attention on Portland, um, because of the way that federal officers are acting. And so while there's that intention here, I, uh, doing my best to make sure people also know that this is how the Portland police act. And you see the mayor of Portland on CNN saying, you know, we condemn this violence. We want the feds out. We want, we can take care of our own people. And like, you know, I just, it, it, it's so important that people understand that this is, uh, the status quo that sure we are Portland police aren't, you know, plucking people up in vans and driving off. Um, that's like, you know, very horrifying, but 
there's still a long history of um, violence with impunity and officers who are on the force who have killed people who are still getting huge salaries. And, um, you know, the list goes on. And, and the ability to, to use this moment to talk about that, I think, is for me as someone who's covered the cops here for a long time and literally knows nothing about federal police, I'm using that moment for, for that. And I think ideally that would help the conversation continue, or at least people know that, oh, hey, maybe Portland isn't this like sunny, liberal, happy space, um, or it is, and at the same time, it's also um, a history with, or a place with, you know, uh, police violence that's not great. Where, where did you guys grow up? I was here. I grew up in uh, rural Northern uh, California. Okay. Oh, what part of California? Oh, look at this. Learning stuff. Don't dox Alex on the call. I'm not going to tell anyone. Talk later. Everyone knows my oh, parents. Uh, it's a cool <laughs> oh. oh, my bad. I wasn't Don't dox that. Alex. Um, sorry. I'm, I'm, yeah. Humble County. I'm from uh, Santa Ana, California. <laughs> okay, nice. So what was your, when you, when you, I mean, how does, uh, what would you like to tell people about the relationship between the show Portlandia and Portland? Nothing. Documentary oh. film? Um, I feel like, I feel the same as I've always had, which is, I could care less. Um, I mean, I just think that lots of people don't know and, about this other side. I mean, Arun was telling me about the the history of, of Portland. Yeah. If they don't know, then they've never engaged with this for like one second. And there are like many, many articles on the fact that, uh, you know, Oregon was found as an explicitly white supremacist state. Uh, there are articles about uh, indigenous genocide that's happening here. There's articles about like the Vanport flood uh, and the ways that black folks have been historically pushed further and further like away from where they were raised and gentrified out of the city. And so folks can choose to engage with that or not. Uh, the people who are just going to watch Portlandia and not pay attention to anything else, like I not, I'm not going to waste time like trying to explain the entire history of Portland to them, but they're welcome to do that research if they'd like. I was just wondering how much that fear uh, is spreading into the rest of the city, do you think? I mean, it seems like a clearly a conscious tactic to terrorize people. So to what extent do you get any sense that it's working? I mean, it sounded like it's escalated the... The counter there's been a more protesting since then i i talked to like i talked to some people who were like 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 some activists who had been like at multiple like rallies throughout the years like guys who've been on the front line like right there with with like not no fear right and like like i i'm hearing that like the federal agents like are having like an effect like the fear like they're not going to stop coming right they're not going to like not show up to the justice center or whatever but that like it does like make him think differently and even like uh connor o'shea the guy who the friend of mark pettiboon the guy who was picked up by federal agents he said like he's not going to stop coming but um he's got to think about it now um which you know um and last night lewis Enrique marquez uh said that like you know that was the point of the federal agents coming here to 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 scare everybody um into, into not coming anymore so like Obviously, protesters are not only like not like they haven't stopped, but like numbers have grown. So it's not putting it's not ending the, the movement. Right. But just because you see them out there and you see them in bigger numbers and you see them dancing after tear gas and like playing the drums 
like like the level of fear i think that has definitely ratcheted up and yes they have more tolerance for it yes they're like adapting and they're not running from tear gas they're walking i still think like like it, this is very different from what it was day one day two like some of these some of these people including like myself are not the same people that they were when this started how so can you ex expand on that yeah uh like um i mean I mean, take a few moments because I, mean, I know that's like a really Alex huge existential and, statement, and, but feel free to jump in, guys. <laughs> How has Sergio changed? <laughs> <laughs> Let me unpack it. I mean, I, I think, um, yeah, as someone who reports on police and has gone to, to protest in the past and covered the way the police respond to protesters, um, it is given this protest is nothing like that. Um, the way the police has re have responded is um, very uncharacteristic, even though there's a history of, of violence against protesters. Um, I mean, it shifted and expanded my understanding of um, the, you know, the level of the police state that we live in. Um, I don't know if it's fundamentally changed who I am as a person. I'm better at dealing I'm better at compartmentalizing my trauma, which is extremely mm -hmm. healthy. Um, and I learned how to, like the best kind of like snacks to bring. That's about it. What are they? Oh, just like a lot of energy <laughs> bars. What, yeah, what are the tips? You know, yeah. you can get like little baby food pouches of fruit and then you just squeeze them right into your mm -hmm. mouth under your mask. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. I learned that from Yeah, someone. there's this level of like, you don't really want to eat a lot because you're out and protesting with masks. You need like a little like horse food. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Josh, do you have more questions? I have more questions, but or you guys can ask each other questions. But I have to... Yeah. Where you put one headphone in to, to charge while the yeah. other one's still working. Yeah, I, yeah I do that too. Yeah, don't charge yeah. anything. Yeah, me neither. Same. I always, I also lose those. But, um, what, what is it like? I mean, how much does the, uh, has the proud boy presence changed in a like, visceral or palpable way for for people just living in, um, in Portland. A fun thing about living in Portland and going to the protests is every half an hour you will hear a rumor that the Proud Boys are on their way, but I haven't seen them in the last 52 days other than one time when I drove over the bridge from Vancouver to Portland. They were standing in Vancouver because that's where they live. I haven't seen them other right. than that. Vancouver, yeah, Washington, right? Not right. Like, yes, okay. correct. Vancouver, Washington. Right. It's nothing like past protests that have just been centered on Proud Boys and, and alt-right groups. Um, they've there's not a big presence at all. Um, I mean, maybe they are wearing uniforms and they're on police lines, but right. we aren't seeing them, you know, in their uh, usual form. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it is? Because they don't need to be because the feds are there or? I truly cannot say. Maybe Sergio has more insight. He's no, embedded, I, embedded I, with them. Uh, it was Patriot Fair, not, not Proud Boys. Oh, tell us um, about that. I, and that embedded, I was doing a story on them. It was all on the record. But yes, I did go drinking story. with those guys. Well, you went uh, drinking with them? Yep. Uh, I didn't mean that. I just didn't hear you. I wasn't like. Yeah, yeah. Not yeah. as a journalist. This is yeah, all... of course. Yeah, it's like the best way to. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah, I, which is Very great because I think bigger outlets don't let you do that. Like it's a no-no, but like smaller local outlets are right. like, hey, what the fuck do you want to do to get the story? Yeah, it's one of the oldest social lubricants, so. 
Um, but to your point, I, I agree with everything Tuck and Alex said. I don't think this, this story uh, even has a footnote about Power Boys. Uh, this is something totally unprecedented. Mm -hmm. Which I think, I mean, it's a fair question because whenever Portland makes headlines for protests, they're usually about white supremacists. Um, right. So uh, that is, it's, you know, I think we're still talking about the same thing just in a different way. Um, yeah, right. Now. I mean, I think it's also interesting to look at, like y'all referred to, the comparative level of press coverage when the Proud Boys are here versus when the like white supremacy is being perpetrated by police officers. Uh, I know that there are local outlets here that when Proud Boys threaten to come to town, they have like 20 reporters working overtime. And the first night of the BLM protest, they had no one on the ground because they didn't know that or feel that it would be important. And so like, mm -hmm. that's also really important to think about is like what media is giving more coverage towards supremacists than they are to black lives. Right. Right. Hey, actually, this has nothing to do with what Tuck said, but it reminded me of something that's important because like I, I kind of want to praise national outlets that are sourcing locally right now. Like mm -hmm. see a lot of Portland journalists going, um, but at the same time, like, you know, coronavirus means that like, there's a lot of journalists who aren't out there right now. Like even local ones who are older are not out there, like really good journalists because of coronavirus. And that's probably the case too nationally. They're not parachuting in as much. Um, so that's something to like, remember that like a, a lot of the freelancers out there are like younger and taking these risks and, uh, like, I absolutely love the Portland Press Corps, and I fucking will buy them all beers until I run out of every single, all my money. Um, but um, I, I hope that, like, when the coronavirus goes away, we don't return to, like, you know, having outlets just parachute into one for a day, putting them at the Hilton, and then leaving the next day. Yeah. Yeah, it's really ridiculous. I mean, it's, like, remarkable. I keep forgetting that uh, all of this stuff is happening while there's a pandemic. Like mm -hmm. the fact that these protests are happening. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely think about it like when like Thursday night, I was tear gassed really badly twice. And the second time I was on a street corner where everyone had their mask off and was like choking and spitting and throwing up. And uh, that is when I think about it the most, because that's when we're most at risk. Uh, right. The rest of the time, I don't think about it anymore. I thought about it the first few days and it just doesn't cross my mind. I, that's a, same here. Like I thought about it right at the beginning, and honestly, um, compared to just going to like the grocery store mm -hmm. or going to the park, people are more masked up and more aware. And like, there's volunteers handing out masks, handing out, um, you know, handing out hand sanitizer, just being like bottles of water. I feel like people are really looking out for each other there, in, in terms of that, to make it more accessible for people who might be concerned. Um, but yeah, but when you start when you get hit by tear gas it's a different story you have strangers pouring their water into your eyes mm -hmm. you're blowing your nose on some rag someone gave you huh. yeah. yeah and then your lungs are messed up like my lungs are messed up for two days after thursday and i was like cool i love to have my lungs messed up in a pandemic that targets the lungs that's awesome i love yeah. that for me can i can i jump in on something here there's we've all been through this many times now but when they're tear gassing and we're walking and your eyes are burning some strangers eyes burning and they're helping each other with water um it is actually you know aside from all the political goals involved in in those nights it is actually like a beautiful like community moment because everybody out there just starts helping each other mm. like um and like you could 
you could be walking blind and just say water help and like three people run to your aid who are probably their eyes are burning too and help you and um i just think like you know these last 52 days you know it's really hard in like everyday like normal pedestrian life to show like like courage or like camaraderie or valor like it, it's like most of your days like at work and then going to like making dinner and shit like that these last few days like every day people have been able to like really like show their character and like and i think portland journalists have gotten really tight because like like we're like making sacrifices for each other and like i think protesters feel the exact same thing like like hourly where they're they're giving up or they're protecting um or they're choosing just to be out there instead of like watching netflix right um so I think like these protests have shown like a level of community that like personally I I haven't seen in the United States and that I think it's something that for travelers that's why we go traveling we want to see that we want to see that kind of like um, meaning in like every hour um, and I think I think we've seen that last few days political stuff aside uh, it's been a beautiful like cultural moment. It's funny because um, I had Johanna Fernandez on, who is a historian and also a major activist who works around like Mamiya Abu Jamal. Um, and she was at, you know, I had her on early on, I guess, when was it? June, I think. And um, May or June, I can't remember. And she was saying how, um, how there was a sense of elation that she experienced. And this is a woman who's been like protesting for a while and um, uh, writes about the young lords. She's not, she's not like um, inexperienced in this. And I just thought that was very like, it kind of related to what you were saying about this, this like sense of camaraderie, even in such dark times. I think there's a lot to be said for, um, for people coming together in times of crisis. I mean, pandemics one thing um you know natural disaster is another thing and kind of the the bonds that you build with your neighbors during those times um and with complete strangers and the empathy that you're really seeking maybe it's because you're um you're feeling vulnerable and scared and alone and like being able to find that with someone else is really important um it's one of those things i wish could always last beyond moments of crisis um and would love to talk about how that could happen but I think that's just another another example of kind of, you know, how this impacts the community. Yeah. Um, well, I we only have a couple more minutes um, and I wanna make sure people uh, know where to find you, but also if you have any uh, links to that you may wanna make sure people have access to, you can put them in the, in the comments. I don't know if they're visible to you or you can just send them to me and I'll put them in the YouTube uh, description. But um, anything else you wanna make sure people know about any thoughts that you want to leave them with? Not that that wasn't we've a good all been, one. We've all been working that was a good really one. hard. Yeah. So I think. <laughs> keep on. Thank you. Thank yeah. You yeah. On. You know, if you, if you see a journalist like on video, like yelling at somebody in a parking lot of a Home Depot, like going like, like ballistic, forgive them. Cause like none of us have slept and none of us like, <laughs> It's probably Sergio, yeah. It is. Yeah, <laughs> Sergio's getting close to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, just, I mean, it's been it's been really cool to hear from people across the country and around the world who are watching and following along and that, like, that really does mean a lot. Like, there are folks who are sending, particularly me and Sergio, like, tips on Venmo and, like, the comments, yeah. the supportive comments are worth as much or more than the actual mm -hmm. money for me personally. Like, it's just nice that my work is being appreciated um, yeah. as an independent journalist. 
Yeah. Well, thank you guys again so much. Mm-hmm. And you. come back on. Thank you. Come back Thanks on. Come on. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. For sure. All right. Well, look at that. I think we all learned a lot. Cool. That was cool, right? Amazing. Amazing. We did. We yeah. did. What did you yeah, learn, Josh? That's no, good. Kind of reminds me of my old, my old riot filming days. <laughs> what were those? When Brought was me that? Back. But yeah, no. I mean, have you ever been uh, tear gassed, By the way. Oh, and uh, uh, no, we had some people brandish some guns at us though in Mexico in two thousand six oh. uh, for the Oaxaca. The Oaxacanos took over their city, mm-hmm. and I was down there filming that. And then I was in London in 2011 filming the London riots and I was living there, but I, they started rioting and I went out and started taking pictures, but they didn't use tear gas. They used water cannons. Ah. So that was their big tactic. Yeah. But it's true. There is that sense of community and solidarity and kind of joyfulness and exhilaration. I mean, it is, there's a lot of adrenaline going and, um, but also it kind of snaps you out of your daily, you know, atomized life and you're connecting with other people and you're also seeing that, oh, there's all these other people that think similarly, you know, when you're at home watching the news and, you know, rage watching the news, you know, you feel like you're the only person maybe with uh, the opinions that you have and then you walk out in the street and there's hundreds of people out there. So. Right. I meant to, yeah, what that what they were saying in that regard really resonated. Yeah. Yeah. I meant to ask them how they what they thought the MSNBC uh, coverage was like, how, how truthful, relevant, whatever they thought it was. Not that it's not. I mean, it was totally obviously leading question, but no one's talked about like. Yeah, I just saw the Chris Hayes. Yeah. The Chris Hayes. Yeah, I just saw the Chris Hayes bit and he was basically saying this is all orchestrated <laughs> by Trump to create theater for Trump. So I think they all, plus Arun, did a good job uh, sort of counteracting that narrative. Yeah. Clearly, it's a little, I mean, it there's that, but it's a the lot other more going on than yeah. that. It's both of them, right? Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like inter- interlocking puzzle pieces. Yeah. Did you guys see... Um, um, but also, yeah, what was the other cover? Oh, well, Pelosi issued a strong statement against it. But then there was no action following the statement. There's no introduction of legislation or convening of the body or. Did she clap back? Like, she hey, clap? you're in charge of Congress. <laughs> I think she tore up some paper. Yeah, good. She tore up yeah. Donald Trump's so, like uh, contract that. or something. Yeah. yeah. She should tear up the contract that the feds have with the with the city. Right. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to The Katie Halper Show. I'll be dropping two Patreon-only episodes this week. The first one is a chat that I had with Josh about how much Joe Kennedy sucks and how pathetic it is that he's trying to play the Bernie bro card against Ed Markey. Make sure you check out the amazing journalists I spoke to on this episode. Tuck Woodstock is a journalist with bylines at NPR, Washington Post, is the host of the award-winning podcast, Gender Reveal. You can find out more about them on Twitter, where their handle is Tuck Woodstock, T-U-C-K-W-O-O-D-S-T-O-C-K. You can also find more about them on their website, tuckwoodstock.com. 
Sergio Olmos is a journalist who has written at the New York Times, Reveal, the Portland Tribune. You can find his work on Twitter, where his handle is Mr. Olmos. That's M-R-O-L-M-O-S. Alex Zelinsky is a news editor at Portland Mercury, and you can find her at Alex underscore Z-E-E. You can find Arun Gupta on Twitter at Arun Indy, A-R-U-N-I-N-D-Y. He's written for places like The Intercept, The Guardian, The Washington Post, In These Times, and more. Thank you.